Thanks, Andrew. Hey, I'm Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at EV Church. It's good to be together this morning. Uh, the question that is on the lips of all of us, I think, if we've been reading that um, passage correctly, is the one that the kids talk so helpfully highlighted for us, is who does God say that Jesus is? Who does the Father reveal Jesus to be? And I think the question that then flows from that is a question around listening. So we're going to think about that together this morning. What is it that makes someone worth listening to? For you guys, as you, just, just pause, stop. Who are the people that you really want to listen to in your life? What are the names that are coming to mind for you right now? It might be, um, it's a question that I've been asking myself a lot recently because I've got young kids, and I, maybe I'm asking it in the reverse, what's going to make them listen to me? I don't know if, if you have young kids, you might be asking that as well. But when I think about the people that I want to listen to, I think it's people who I trust, my parents, uh, people who have wisdom that you share it with me, who know me, maybe friends, family, that kind of thing. People, sometimes, you know, we have to listen to people who we think, uh, it, whether we respect them or not, there's the kind of people who are in authority, you know, authority figures at the workplace, uh, in the society, police, that kind of thing. You, you listen to it because they've got this position of authority over us. I think for my kids, sometimes they just listen to me because I'm their dad and I tell them they have to. But I, I hope also as they grow, it'll come, they'll come to see that part of it is seeing that I actually have some wisdom and actually I love them and want what's best for them. Well, Matthew 17 puts this question of listening kind of front and centre for us. And so what is it that makes Jesus worth listening to? If you think back to those names that came into your mind at the start of who are the people that I want to listen to, well, what is it that would make Jesus worth listening to for you? You might be here this morning not convinced that Jesus is worth listening to. I'm going to get a bit more into that, and I hope to be able to convince you that he is. Um, But for some of us, we've been listening to Jesus for a long time. We've been listening to him for a long time, and what I want to do for us today, if that's you, if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus who's been listening to him for a long time, I want us to come together and get a fresh picture of the goodness and the glory of Jesus. Because I'm convinced that we need this reminder regularly to come and see who Jesus is so that we will want to listen to him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and live for him. So why don't we pray now that God would help us to do that as we come to his word. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we, as we dig into seeing who Jesus is, we pray that you would work in our hearts this morning, not just to know who Jesus is as head knowledge, but to love him and grow the conviction to listen to him with our hearts, to live lives centered on King Jesus, even when we find that hard. Amen. We saw last week in chapter 16, didn't we, is kind of the hinge of the book of Matthew. And so Matthew 1 to 16 is asking the question, who is Jesus, his identity, his mission, what's he here for? And we kind of saw with Jesus puts it front and center to Peter, who do you say that I am? And and listen to Peter's response, Matthew 16, verse 16. I should say, I don't have slides this morning. Sorry about that. So make sure you have your Bible open. Read along as we work through the passage together. It's not going to come up on the screen. Matthew 16, verse 16. Jesus asked Peter, "Who who do you think I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. See, this is the moment that Matthew's gospel has been building to. This moment where Peter finally sees Jesus for who he truly is, the Messiah, 
the Son of God, God's promised King, the Great One whom God would send into the world to bring about blessing for God's people and bring about God's rule and provision and justice and blessing across the whole world. But if you remember last week, we didn't touch on it in heaps of detail. It's a moment where Jesus makes it clear that Peter's idea of what it means to be the Messiah is very different to what Jesus has in mind with his picture of Messiah. See, I think Peter, what does he have in mind in chapter 16? He has in mind this kind of conquering king, this one who's going to come and bring a big army and overthrow the kind of Roman oppressors that were holding Israel down and kind of just trample over anyone who's standing in Jesus's way. This kind of conquering king who's going to help Israel get back to the place that they ought to have in society. But Jesus has a very different picture of Messiah. And we saw, if you flip back a page in verse 21, that the Messiah is going to suffer, be killed, and raise from the dead on the third day. It totally flips Peter's perspective of this ruling, conquering king. And in verse 24, we saw last week, didn't we, that if you want to follow this Messiah, what does Jesus ask of you? That you will deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That to follow Jesus isn't all about ruling and conquering and blessing and prosperity and health and wealth and goodness and having everything that you want in your life. No, no. To follow Jesus is going to cost. It's going to involve denying yourself and actually being willing to follow him even when it costs you. I wonder for us today, as we come into this next bit of Matthew's gospel, can we have mismatched expectations about Jesus? Just like Peter did. The kind of thoughts that maybe it's something like this. Surely being a follower of Jesus means my life will be good. God wants to bless me. Or maybe it's following Jesus will add value to my life. My life is already pretty good. I'm pretty happy with the way things are. And I'm just looking for that little value add, that little bit extra to make my life even better. Or what about surely God wants good for me. He wouldn't let me suffer. If I have enough faith in him, he's going to give me the good stuff that I want. We can have mismatched expectations about Jesus. And Jesus here is about to wake up his disciples and show them who he is. And I hope as he does that, we'll see more clearly who Jesus is. He's going to show them that their current view of him, of life, of where to find satisfaction, of where to find hope, of what glory actually looks like, We can sometimes fall so far short of the real deal, of who Jesus actually is in the pages of history, when we see him and the way he acted, what he taught, what he did for us. And so let's get into it. The first point for us this morning in your outlines, you can see, is the glory. I want to show us just why Jesus is worth listening to, because he has all of the glory of God. So pick it up with me in chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. So Jesus takes his three best mates up the mountain, and all of a sudden he starts to shine. You can imagine the disciples throughout this whole experience, their mixture of like awe and terror and not knowing what to do in the face of this kind of brilliance that's coming off of Jesus. His face is shining. His, the, it's like the sun radiating off him. His clothes, they start to shine. And in verse 2, we see that he's transfigured. 
Um, that's a word which means to kind of change in form. It's not that Jesus turns into someone else, but I take it it's a sense that we see Jesus for who he truly is. For so much of Jesus' life up until this point, he's kind of looked and talked and walked and been just like every other human. But here for a moment, God kind of pulls the curtain back to show us that Jesus is no ordinary human, that he is filled with glory. It's like you get to see Jesus for who he truly is, the first little glimpse of the glory of Jesus. If you know your Bible, these images of of light and and mountains and, and glory, they aren't actually all that surprising for us because God consistently reveals his glory in high places and through the imagery of light. Okay, let me give you a few examples. Think when uh, Israel, Moses first comes into contact with God uh, back in the Exodus narrative. It's in the form of a burning bush, this like bright hotness that's in the burning bush that's not actually burning up the bush. Or think, um, what what is it that goes in front of Israel when they are going out in the Exodus, um, fleeing from Egypt? It's a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night. Uh, Think... um, in the uh, account in Chronicles, when the temple is completed, what happens when the temple is completed, if you know that story? The glory of the Lord fills the temple and there's thunder and lightning and there's kind of bright gloriousness. It's like it can't be content- that God's glory just shows itself in this kind of images of light and heat and white. The point of the brightness here for Jesus is it shows us that this is God's divine glory on display. It, it highlights that this is not anything from Jesus himself, but shows us that this one is actually from God. And in verse 3, suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I'll set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Peter just can't believe it, right? He's like, I, I can imagine Peter like running around like a bit of a headless chook. Like he doesn't know what to do. He's like, oh, Jesus has just been transfigured in front of me. He's got the glory of God shining. And, and, and now Moses and Elijah are here. And what's Peter's response? Oh, let me set up a tent for you. Let me try and make things a little bit comfortable. He's switched into like host mode here, Peter. Two of the greatest prophets in all of Israel's history appear with Jesus, the Messiah, who he's just named as Messiah. And he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's in the most awestruck company he'd ever have imagined. Now, I don't think it's random that it's Moses and Elijah that show up here. Remember the context of this event in chapter 16 we saw last week? The context is answering the question who Jesus is. It's all about the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and so Moses and Elijah, they're kind of the key figures from the Old Testament that spoke the word of God to his people. And so Moses, if you remember the story in Exodus, he's the one who God chooses to lead Israel out of slavery. He's the one whom God speaks to on Mount Sinai. He's the one who records the law, the Ten Commandments. He basically functions to kind of, it's God, and then God speaks to Moses, and then Moses speaks to the people. And so Moses has this role to speak the word of God to God's people. He's the one 
whom you start to see God's promises to Abraham start to bear fruit. The promise of blessing, of, the, of having a new land, the promise of making a nation through them and how to organize that nation to be a holy people with the holy God. That's kind of Moses' role in Israel's history. And you have Elijah, who is called in the Old Testament the great prophet, the great one. He's the one who his key role was um, to help God's people turn back to God, to stop worshipping false idols and the things of this world that are created things and come back to worship the true and living God. Elijah's name literally means, my God is Yahweh. There is no other God except for Yahweh. And so Elijah had this role to keep calling the people back to see who God is. And so you have Moses, the great prophet who communicates God's word, and Elijah, the great prophet who calls the people back to see and trust the true and living God. In one sense, I would say that Moses here represents the law of God in a a kind of figurative sense. And, And Elijah kind of represents the prophets, the law and the prophets. All of the sum total of how God communicates and blesses his people is through the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. And so in the context of that, you expect there to be a word from God saying, listen to Moses, the one who gave you the law. Listen to Elijah, the great one, the great prophet of God who keeps calling God's people back to himself. But what does God say to Peter, James, and John as they're surrounded here on the mountain by these great ones of Israel? Verse 5, while Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. If it wasn't enough to see the Jesus shining with the glory of God, this voice from the cloud booms, and it's left, it's clear to the disciples who this voice is. This is God himself speaking from a cloud. And and it's clear that what God says to them is that Jesus is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Listen to him. See, Jesus doesn't just have the glory of God shown in the kind of the images of light and being on a mountain and, and having you know, those things revealed to him. God himself affirms the identity and authority of Jesus. My beloved son, with whom I'm pleased, listen to him. The beloved son ties us back to Psalm 2, which speaks about the great son, the great king of Israel, whom would bless the people. The one with whom I'm well pleased ties us into the suffering servant narratives in the Isaiah 40 narrative that speaks of this one who would come and give his life up for the people, the servant who would suffer and die at great cost to himself. So here's what God is saying to them on the mountaintop. The Son has all the glory and authority that the Father has, that God himself has. See, we're supposed to read this, think back to God revealing himself in the pillar of fire on the mountain at Sinai with the glory in the temple, filled with God's presence. We're supposed to think back to those, and what we're supposed to see is that those are partial and incomplete pictures of the glory of God. But Jesus... He's the perfect representation of the glory of God. He's the one who represents God perfectly in a way that the temple, the law, the prophets, none of them ever could. See, all of life and creation has been leading up to this moment where God would declare this king, 
his son, the one whom he loves, and ask us to listen to him. All of history so far finds its fulfillment in Jesus. It brings to mind what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.17. Do you remember it? He says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. See, what did Jesus mean there? I think we see it find its fulfillment here in Matthew 17. I think he means at least two things. The first is that the law and the prophets helped us to understand God and, and God spoke through them, but in an unfinished kind of way. And, and so when he says that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, we're seeing that God speaks fully and finally and completely through the Son. This is Hebrews 1, right? Jesus is the Son whom God speaks a final word authoritatively through. Listen to him in a way that um, supersedes and fulfills the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. And second, the law and the prophets, they were looking forward to a Messiah, a king of, from God who would bless the people and bring about God's plans in the world. And in Jesus, the law and the prophets find their fulfillment. Jesus is the answer to God's plan for salvation, God's plan to deal with sin, God's plan for a, a holy God to be with his people into eternity. That all finds its fulfillment in Jesus, its completion in Jesus. This means for us, as we reflect on who Jesus is revealed in glory on the mountaintop, that it's impossible to have just a little bit of Jesus on the side in your life. It's impossible to have Jesus like an add-on, like an extra, like an entree or you know, something else on the side. It's impossible to think that Jesus came into the world to make my good life better to add as a top-up, to add as this one to make my already satisfied life just that little bit extra, that little bit bonus. See, if God is for real here, if this is who Jesus is, then Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the authoritative voice above every other voice in this world. This moment on the mountain, it's just a taster. It's just a taster of the glory of God, which is going to be revealed throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel. See, Jesus is the one who goes willingly on to walks to his death on a cross in our place. So many of us, what we want is to be inspired by Jesus, to be motivated by Jesus, to, to have, have him give us that little bit extra in our life. We think that Christianity is about kind of topping our life up and adding that little bit of bonus to the things that are already good here in this world. Jesus didn't come to inspire us. He does inspire us, but first and foremost, he came to die for us. His death isn't just an inspiring act, but it's his death in place of our death, taking the punishment for our sin that we deserve for our rebellion against God and dying in our place. His death is your death, so that you might be freed of slavery to yourself, to sin, to death, to the things of this world. If you're going to have Jesus as your saviour, you need to move him from being on the peripheral to the centre. You need to have him as your saviour. That means you need to listen to him. Jesus says in John 14, he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commands. 
It's not that you have to keep, your command, keep his commands to earn his love. No, no. He's loved you. He's died for you. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. And so he asks you, hey, if you do love me, if you trust me as your Savior, listen to me. Keep my commands. See what God's saying to us. See, this is the son whom he loves, the glorious, authoritative one from God. Listen to him. He's glorious. I guess it begs the question, uh, where do you find that hard in your life? Where do you find it hard to listen to Jesus? What are those areas for you where you either push Jesus out to the periphery or you just slip into the way of this world of, um, you, you know, even, even if people don't have any particular faith or religious beliefs, lots of people think that Jesus is a good added bonus, extra add-on to your life. That's what happens to me just about every time I talk about Jesus with someone who doesn't know Jesus. They either think, oh, that's stupid, but they don't really ever set it to my face. They might think it. Or they say, oh, good for you. Something like that. This, the, the world says that Jesus is only possible if he's an added extra bonus in your life. Whereas Jesus says, no, no, if you're going to listen to Jesus, he's your savior, he's your Lord. Keep him at the center. Jesus shows us that he's worth listening to because he has all of God's glory. Here's the second point. Jesus has all of God's glory, and the one who came before Jesus showed us that Jesus himself is worth listening to. See, can you imagine the disciples and how terrified they would have been in this moment? They fall down in fear, responding to this voice from the cloud. And I love verse 7, how Jesus, he kind of moves towards them with compassion, and he comforts them, doesn't he? He says, get up, don't be afraid. The tenderness of Jesus in these moments of great fear. I think we can overlook those, but isn't it beautiful just to see Jesus' tenderness? And the disciples later, they're going down the mountain, and verse 9, Jesus tells them, don't say anything about this to anyone until after I've been raised from the dead. Now, can you imagine the disciples? It's like if you go fishing and catch like the biggest fish ever, or you go to the coolest party and see a celebrity or something. Like, Did it even happen if you can't talk about it? Uh, why is it that the least weird bit of that sentence is, until the Son of Man rises from the dead? Like, This is kind of a bit crazy, isn't it? That they can't talk about this amazing thing that Jesus has shown them. And so what do they do? Well, they're kind of like a bit lost for words, and you get the question there. They ask, well, we, if we can't talk about this... Um, they ask a question in verse 10. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Again, that's not a random question. Elijah has been, he was one of the ones that appeared on the mountain. And it might seem a bit random, but I think this is their question to kind of ask, well, when will this happen? If we can't talk about it, when will be the time when we can talk about it? When will the death and resurrection of you, Jesus, the Son of Man, that's his favorite title, when will that happen? And I think they ask it by asking about Elijah because of what Malachi chapter 4 says. See, the scribes say Elijah must come first, and the scribes are picking up on a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. I'll read it out for us. Uh, If you want to have it flick there, you can um, leave a finger in Matthew 17 and flick across. It says this, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Look, I'm I'm going to send to you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So this is a prophecy that's written much after the life of Elijah. And so the scribes looked at that and they said, oh, well, before the day of the Lord happens, before that moment happens, which the day of the Lord is the language where God's going to come and save his people and judge his enemies, before that happens, Elijah's going to come back. And so they're asking, well, when's Elijah going to come so that they can know, well, when will Jesus die and rise again? 
They have in their mind the Daniel 7 prophecy, the Son of Man going to be with God and going to God and, and God giving him all rule and authority and power. Okay, And so they're wondering, when's this going to happen? When's it going to happen? Look how Jesus responds to them in Matthew 17, verse 11. He says, Elijah is coming and will restore everything. He replied, but I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus said he's going to die and be raised again on the third day. And they know that that kind of resurrection and authority that this son of man figure is going to have is tied to the day of the Lord. And so that's why they asked the question. And his response is that Elijah has already come. Now, we see in verse 13, he's not meaning Elijah literally. He doesn't mean that the Elijah from the past, the prophet, has been kind of resurrected and come back. No, he says that the one who does the role of Elijah has already come. This Elijah figure whose role was to call the people back. Remember, Elijah's role was to call the people back from worshipping false gods, false idols, back to the true and living God. And to prepare the way for the Lord to come in glory, to, to ask the people to repent. That's Elijah's role. And in verse 13, Jesus says, well, that's the role that John the Baptist had. John the Baptist was the one who God sent to prepare the way for Jesus to come into the world. So do you remember back in chapter 3, when John is baptizing Jesus? That's the first sign of Jesus' glory. Because John goes out to baptize Jesus and the Spirit comes onto Jesus like a dove. The heavens open and we hear a voice. And the voice says nearly the same phrase that we hear here in Matthew 17. The voice of God in Matthew 3 says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. There's the glory of God. And we see in the course of the, the chapters between 3 and 17 that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one with all authority. And so here we get the command repeated, but with the added bonus, listen to him. Listen to him. But what did they do to John? What happened to John, the one who came to prepare the way for the glory of God to come and be with his people? They killed him. He was imprisoned and killed because they didn't want to listen to God. And Jesus is saying here, in the same way that they killed John, they'll kill me. In the same way that they rejected John, they'll reject me. They'll reject the one who prepares for God to come into this world and ask people to repent. And they'll reject God when he comes in the flesh in the form of Jesus. And they'll kill him. See, Jesus' prediction here, it's devastating. It's devastating. When faced... With God in all of his glory, how will humanity respond? By rejecting him, by refusing to listen to him, by refusing to submit to him as the king of the universe, by failing to listen to him and killing him, by failing to see who he truly is and listen to him. I'm struck here as I reflect on just the certainty of Jesus. He knew this was going to happen. He knew his mission would be to suffer and die, to come as the king who is worthy of being listened to above any other voice. And yet he knew his people would reject him. He knew humanity would reject him and it would cost him everything, his own life. 
And yet Jesus still acts with tenderness towards his disciples. He still heads resolutely to the cross despite knowing what is going to happen to him. There is never anyone who has been more trustworthy in all of human history. There's never been one who loves us more than God and than Jesus. There's never been one who wants what's best for us more than Jesus. I think about my own life, and, and I know this, I know it with my head, but yet it's hard to listen to Jesus sometimes. Do you guys relate to that? It can be hard to listen to Jesus, even though I know there isn't one more trustworthy, there isn't one who's given up more for me. And yet I just I find it hard to trust him, to count on his promises, to listen to him and live his way, not mine, to take off my crown, put it aside, and let Jesus be the king. I'm reminded here in this story to take Jesus at his word, to, to be encouraged to, to see more clearly his glory and his authority, and to listen to him. Because really, when you see the glory and goodness of Jesus, what else is there other than to listen to him? This is the third point. I'm going to finish here. Listen to Jesus. He's got all the glory and authority. He speaks with the final authority of the word of God made known among us today. We see in the Bible <clears throat> the gospels which contain the life and death of Jesus his teachings, his authority, and the New Testament epistles which unpack the teaching of Jesus into the local church and how we're to live. We've got everything we need to listen to Jesus, and yet you, like me, we find it hard. I think part of that is sin, this side of eternity. We're always going to find it hard to listen to Jesus because of sin in our hearts. We want to call the shots. We want to rule our lives. But I reckon a big part of it also comes from the voices that we listen to. The other voices that can crowd Jesus out in our lives. C.S. Lewis, I've just been reading a little bit of C.S. Lewis. There's um, a few quotes here from the Screwtape Letters. Has anyone read the Screwtape Letters? It's a fascinating book. It's a fictional conversation between two demons speaking about how to destroy and distract and take Christians away from Jesus. And, and here's what one demon says to the other. He says, Whatever their bodies do affect their souls. It's funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Do you see what C.S. Lewis is trying to pick up there? That actually sometimes the work of Satan in our lives is just best done by keeping you from listening to Jesus. And, and often that just happens in the world just from the other things that can crowd out and overpower hearing Jesus. We live in a society where there are a million distractions to listening to Jesus. I read one study that said that 77% of people, if they sit down with nothing to do, will get out their phone and just start scrolling on an app. I'm in the 77%. Are you guys in the 77%? I just automatically reach for my phone, and then sometimes I'm trying to like kill habits, and then I find myself just like scrolling. I'm like, what am I doing? Do you guys do that sometimes too? In this digital age, we are driven to distraction. We're driven to distraction, and the noise of this modern world can make us deaf to listen to Jesus. And so it can be really hard. But it's actually worse than that. We're not just distracted and unable to hear Jesus' voice. We are being formed by the other voices that we listen to. See, the voices that we give ourselves to hear, the things that consume our attention, that we give our time to, those things are actually shaping us. 
See, to be human is not just to be intellectual. We're actually driven by a combination of mind and heart and soul. And, and, and the things that we listen to, they slowly start to form us over time. Little by little, the things that you give your attention to will shape you, and you will grow to love them more, the things that you focus on. People who spend hours on social media scrolling tend to become angry, anxious, and insecure kind of people. If you spend hours watching kind of dark or sexually charged TV shows, it's no wonder you'll become compulsive, addictive, and lustful. If you spend hours every day focusing on investment advice and finance goals and how to make the next bit of money, it's no wonder that those things will, t- will drive you to tend to become more focused on money and to find your hope and satisfaction in the possessions of this world. See, Lewis, again, shows us the great danger of what happens when we kind of shift our gaze off Jesus and on to any other thing. This can be small things, small sins, things that kind of seem unhurtful at the start, but end up actually taking us away from listening to Jesus. He says this, It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge man further away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Do you get there what he's saying? That the, the greatest, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The one where you just have other things that come and center your life on, other small sins that you give yourself to that just over time head you away from Jesus. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without milestones, or signposts. See, we come like whatever we gaze upon and whatever we give our attention to. And so in light of that, the road to becoming like Jesus, to becoming a fully formed disciple of Jesus, to becoming the one whom God has made you to be and is indwelling in you by his spirit to produce, it's to listen to Jesus. That's the red carpet to transformation is to focus on Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to give your time and energy to Jesus. Not just in a kind of a five-minute here or there kind of way, but in a contemplative, focused, life-centering kind of way. One pastor said, the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. I love that. Doesn't that capture something great about what it means to be a disciple? To be listening to Jesus, obeying him, and just heading in that slow, steady direction towards Jesus, not not away from him, as C.S. Lewis helped us to see. To be Christians who are attentive to Jesus, who are shaped by his word, who are soaked in it. I don't know what that could look like for you. It might mean trying to start to memorize some scripture, trying to carve out and set aside some more clear time to spend with God, trying to make sure you make it and commit to getting to your connect group every week, to meeting with other Christians who are going to encourage you. For me, it's one thing I'm trying to work on at the moment is my prayer life, to, to write down the things that are shaping me in my day and bring them to God in prayer each night. A long obedience in the same direction. Seeing the world the way Jesus does, caring about the things that Jesus cares about, giving yourself to the mission that Jesus came and gave his life for. 
If you know Jesus, hasn't he proved himself to you to be worth listening to? Full of glory and truth. To listen to Jesus is where we find true life. See, God is saying to each of us this morning, as clearly as he said it to Peter, James, and John on the mountain, Jesus is God's beloved son, the Messiah. Listen to him. Let's pray that we would. Father God, we're so thankful for King Jesus. We're so thankful that even though he knows us, he knows our fears, our failings, our doubts, and the way that we just so often fail to listen. And yet we see him resolutely set his face towards death on a cross. We pray that you would help us to see the glory and the goodness of Jesus, that to listen to him is where we find life. We pray that there's other voices in our life that tend to drown out Jesus and hearing from him, that you would help us to make a change this week to turn the volume down on the other voices and to turn the volume up so that we might hear you speak to us through your word, that we might love Jesus and listen to him. We pray that we might do all of this in the power of your grace, trusting and holding firmly to the one who saved us. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.